0: This is the Podcast for Democracy, a global conversation to encourage and support your activism. Produced by Open, the online progressive engagement network. Today's guests longtime organizer, lobbyist, and trial attorney Keisha Gaskins Nathan, director for the Democratic Practice United States program at the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and Trellis Stepter, senior program officer for climate change solutions and democratic values with the Mertz Gilmore Foundation. Now here's your host, Executive Director of OPEN, Giovanna Negretti.
1: Keisha, can you tell me a little bit about your journey to your current work? You've been for a while now leading in the forefront of conversations around democracy in the United States, particularly today, given the current reality of the United States. It makes me wonder how you got to where you are right now, interested in issues of democracy.
2: Sure. So I'm at the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and the work that led me here seemed very logical in some ways. Started in the community, working hard on community-based issues, but structural democracy, right? So still working on redistricting at the community level. And then moving into more formal, frankly, employed positions, advancing opportunities for pro-democracy, and opportunities for women's leadership, the League of Women Voters and the Minnesota Women's Political Caucus. And then really had a great opportunity to work as a civil rights attorney, focusing on voting rights and ballot access with the Brennan Center for Justice as senior counsel there. Um, also leading the redistricting and representation program there as well
1: and how about you Trellis I mean we go way back so I know a little bit but tell us about your journey to to working on issues around democracy for the mertz Gilmore Foundation
3: before coming to Mertz Gilmore worked at Proteus and the Piper Fund and you know did a diversity fellowship to help diversify the field of philanthropy after you know I worked for about a decade in um, as a political organizing um, in Massachusetts uh, both on the legislative and executive side and um, when I worked in the state legislature, I had the good fortune of working for two of the leaders in the marriage equality movement: Representative Byron Rushing, then who was the assistant majority leader, and Alice Wolf. You know, both of them afforded me uh, um, a great deal of opportunity to be in the room as those negotiations were happening during those constitutional conventions, and I got to see how movements got birthed, Right, I, you know, the state house was full at the time of people singing, you know, My Country Tis of Thee, The Star Spangled Banner, songs that, you know, reminded me of Eyes on the Prize and the deep meaning those songs held for Black people, right, during the Civil Rights Movement. And so I got curious about, like, how do people have time to do this? And who's funding people to go talk to their neighbors and collect their signatures and information to help move elected officials. So, yeah, it was really uh, that time that I learned about Proteus and um, got a chance to do that that fellowship. Um, so that's, that's how I come to, to doing the work I do. I think secondarily, I would say, I'm from New Orleans originally, right? And my mother and our family uh, went through Katrina, right? And it took my mom eight years to get her road home money to get the blue tarp off the family home due to Katrina. Uh, as you all know, BP happened a year later, filling all tolls oil across our Gulf that's meant to protect us from hurricanes like Katrina. And within a year, BP had those oil wells flowing again. And it's that disparity in power that I like to say, um, you know, motivates me to do the work that I'm fortunate to get to do
1: there is an enormous influence, particularly in the rise of authoritarianism and the alt-right in terms of how these movements are funded. And much of this funding is coming from the U.S. by way of major donors or um, the alt-right wing Christian groups and impacting elections in Italy and Sweden and all of, all of these different places. Can you tell me a little bit about your perspective about funding infrastructure to fight the rise of authoritarianism in the United States? Technology and techies are expensive. How do we deal with this new reality of misinformation, disinformation, the role of technology and how that's being funded in order to feed the rise of the alt-right, not only in the United States, but around the world?
3: I think back to electrification in this country. And when we first had electricity, electricity by the markets served and filled urban communities really well. And then government noticed that certain communities were left out and they weren't benefiting from the electrification because, right, utilities didn't see a market and building out that infrastructure in those places. And so government had to step in to intervene and created these things called rural electric co-ops that allows you to build um, localized energy. Now, you're wondering why am I talking about a New Deal uh, infrastructure in the 21st century, right? And the reason is because something similar has happened with social media and technology. The growth of social media has taken what is largely been the public square and privatized it, like Twitter and Facebook These are, you know, taking people's information and, you know, that people bring to those platforms and building profits off of it. And so there's no people's web, right? There's no people's internet, a place that is responsive to the broad forces of the American public, which is, again, supposed to be the ground of our democracy. And to me, it's one of the gaps um, that we need is, again, a way for private interest to have to respond to the public interest. Imagine um, our cable systems without C-SPAN, a way for people to see into the institutions and corridors of power. I don't know what that fully looks like for, uh, for technology and social media platforms, but I do believe it's a place we need. And philanthropy can play a role in um, working with actors, both within private and the public space, to create an intervention um, that supports the leveling of people's voices.
2: How about you, Keisha? Thank you. I think the thing that I find interesting about your question is Move On and Color Change are both digital native organizations. They were founded online to exist online within the digital space. They're movement spaces. So I, I think what that leads into is this notion somehow that the ability of this digital revolution evolution is somehow the the the, the province of the right. I don't think that's true at all right the opportunities for ai and generative ai when we look at what that can do for movement based organizations that are based locally in community the ability to be able to generate more information the ability to actually um, expand opportunities for human resources and all these other pieces there actually is an enormous amount of opportunity that actually exists on both sides to expand opportunity i think what you're speaking to is the uh, the unique ability, given misinformation, and disinformation as a strategy for certain folks who are seeking to exploit the factors that make it possible for minority rule. And these tactics, misinformation, disinformation, disruption are all are all uniquely suited to the sort of infiltrative ability of what we're seeing in the world, right? As we see uh, Twitter's massive demise, under a very short time we're seeing the rise of more so than ever deeply small discrete opaque social network bubbles and echo chambers that allow disinformation to spread for whom outsiders have no visibility into and how is that how is that working how is that fostering and so uh, to your point giovanna like there's a unique set of strategies that really serve very well. Authoritarians and others are seeking to exploit and advance minority rule, exclude um, large sectors of the population, and are dependent upon exclusion to actually hold power and their ability to leverage those factors. But I don't want to overly conflate the notion of digital space. Um, which I think our movement folks are really adept at operating in, the opportunities that are presented by AI and generative AI for these same groups to actually do work, um, and to try and figure out how those some of those same um, activities and factors are able to advance much of the positive movement work in the world in addition to the kinds of actions and activities we're seeing on the authoritarian side. I don't want to sound ridiculously Pollyanna-ish. I am not, I'm not ignoring the notion of how devastating and how quickly this information is moving, looking at how geopolitical forces are coming up with China actually having their first Spanish, native Spanish language outlet in Honduras. And what will that do? Right, for in language uh, stuff coming out, of, um, coming out of the Global South in very specific ways. So don't, don't hear me say this isn't a challenge or a problem. What I hope you're hearing me say is this is a challenge and a problem for some of our best minds who will continue to focus on the ability to in- infiltrate and disrupt some of these practices. There does have to be a, a measure of global governance around how these tools are used, what they're being done, and that actually cannot be ignored by our governments and, gov- and by our governments and largest corporations. But I think also there's a both and here. I don't know if that answers your question yes, exactly, absolutely. but I, I'm i hoping it sort of also shapes it in both the opportunities and the deep concerns and challenges we have around how digital shows up.
1: When you think about the state of democracy in the United States right now, how, for example, the events of January 6th have really heightened the threat of democracy in the United States that was, you know, unthinkable really before, but there was a role in technology as, as it relates to how that was able to, to happen in that very fast, fiery way. What do you think are the current threats now as it relates to democracy in the United States? What can we be hopeful for, do you think? So what keeps you hopeful Things that are happening um, in the democracy space of the United States that that we can learn from in other places around the world. Maybe we can start with you this time, Keisha.
2: You know, I gotta say, in most cases, in almost every place, we allow people to have an opportunity for direct democracy. People choose freedom, progress, civil rights almost every time. The the kinds of challenges that we're seeing. Are almost entirely a result of concentrated political power, manipulating rules to consolidate power um, and exclude the opportunity for people's voices to be heard, and taking advantage of every opportunity to continue to do so, whether it's making it harder for a direct democracy to even function by raising thresholds um, for victory, whether or whether or not it is carving people out using age-old tactics around vote suppression and access. Um, There is no question that the kinds of patterns and practices we're seeing in jurisdictions all over the United States at the hands of folks who are seeking to consolidate and control power really do undermine our democratic principles. But when people have the opportunity to speak, they almost always do in the name of freedom and uh, pro-democracy and expansion of rights. The notions of how some of these things are shaped are shaped by some media discussions and conversations, which I think have really misaligned and misrepresented really where many of the American people are. Um, And so what gives me hope are the people themselves. We've also seen some global trends, um, whether it's Erdogan, Bolsonaro and others that seem to be, we were worried that they would reject outcomes that didn't favor them, even close ones, and they didn't that while folks aren't interested in walking away from power, um, the kinds of reindeer games that we saw in the United States around vote denial and some of these other things are not expanding to other areas, which seems incredibly important. Um, where we are seeing that kind of uh, behavior, certainly Cambodia and other spaces, you know, there's still significant pushback. And again, the digital space that you've identified is elevating this around the globe. So there are global responses to this behavior, particularly as we enter 2024, where we have the greatest number of people around the globe that will be experiencing head of state elections in this one year, the risk, for some of the misinformation strategies and tactics that we saw in 2016 to be exploded all over gives me some concern um, as I think it should for a lot of us. But I think we are seeing in some of the areas where we've seen elections um, in higher profile democracies on the edge of a knife, we've seen leaders comply with the outcomes of elections um, the fact is, vote deniers are not gaining that much traction, at least at the statewide, uh, at the statewide and higher levels, in the U.S. And we're actually seeing an organized response to the notion of manipulating elections around um, political ideology rather than um, rather rather than fact science and reliance upon outcomes. Thank
1: you. How about you, Trellis?
3: I think to me, you know, for the piece that I think is the greatest threat. Is around the uh, the concentration of money resources in our political system. I guys earlier um, who talked about the equation between democracy and moneyed interest influence got it right that you can't have both. Like Keisha, my. Uh, Inkling is to lean on the side of the people and on um, the people's voice in democracy. So those folks standing up to make sure that you know ballot initiatives, their direct voice of people in policymaking, stays open in the places that they're, um, that it exists and the limits aren't raised too greatly for people's voices to continue to move policy there. And that we look to expand it to places that traditionally haven't. Um, had direct democracy. And I think that's especially true um, in the face of the you know, Supreme Court's grappling with state legislative theory. If state legislatures um, are going to be given greater say and power over policy, then again, we have a checks and balance system is the way I learned it. And so we need a, a people's check on that um, hold on power that they have. You know, uh, the other thing that occurs to me, again, to build on what Keith said, that the first deniers, right, weren't around election. It was actually around climate, right? Uh, And we might go back a little further and say it was around some people's basic existence, might be one that came up further, but I'll just use the one as climate is a good place for us to start, right? And we saw that you had, right, Companies, fossil fuel companies in particular, uh, do research that directly knew about the climate problem, but treated it like fake news and denied it. And so, like, I just think it's sometimes we think of the moment we're in now as being fully unique, as not having precedent in things that have happened before. But I think the forces of authoritarianism in our country learn from one another, right? Learn from these previous campaigns, really, I would call them, that have been put forth and um, are always looking to learn and grow their work. And so given moneyed interests desire to hold on to power and to align their self-interest, their corporate interest with all that they do, including their philanthropic work. It's incredibly incumbent upon us to ensure that that we align our interests with the people's interests and ensuring that they have a voice in in our democracy to help counter that. That's the thing that continually gives me hope because at every response, at every time, whether it's in Missouri post-Ferguson, whether it's in Richmond post-oil refinery, And corporate attempt to take over municipal elections. It doesn't matter where it could be Montana, right? Doesn't matter where it is. Um, People stand up against those interests and attempt to hold those interests accountable. And we need re they need to be resourced in order to do that.
1: If we look at democracy in in many places, um, including the United States, even in Brazil, in Colombia, even though in Colombia they have a progressive leadership there, um, it seems, though, these democracies are still very fragile, like hanging by a thread. In the case of the United States, it's been said that if it weren't for Black women in Georgia, we would probably be in a different place right now as it relates to democracy in the United States. If true, then what does that mean for the future of American democracy? Because if we have on the one end the special interests and then the other end the people, people who are suffering the worst in terms of racial discrimination, opportunities for education, I, where does that put us in terms of the future of democracy? the responsibility that's being put on the shoulders of the people with very little resources to maintain it.
2: Whether or not we're talking about a moment in democracy or the story of democracy. When I think about how democracy has shown up, I do think we have to be a little cautious about reaching back, like some, like we've lost this this thread of real democracy and now we have to, you know, we, we had a democracy that was designed, if you look at the Bill of Rights, it is designed for a very discreet set of folks to be able to continue to act with impunity and not be imposed on by government. And the subsequent amendments needed to be put in place so everybody else could be protected from the impunity of the first group. That the constitutional right, that the bundle of the fully amended constitution, which represents something very different than the constitution at its founding, but the fully amended constitution that actually embraces who we are today has yet to be realized in this country, has yet to be realized, those ideas and principles have yet to be realized globally. And so as we think about, it, it's like, oh, we're holding on. We're still fighting. We're fighting to realize something. And each each benefit, each gain is met with a response and a backlash. And as we think about growing, to your point, as we think about growing in a place from abundance, opportunity, and love, to grow a democracy and space and place, it's a different shape and orientation than one of scarcity, you know, a, a scarcity model, which says, gosh, people who don't have enough can't express themselves. This is, there's literally been no evidence of that. When I think about, when we when we think about the the Tar Sands protests and the other protests around the pipelines, going through some of the most impacted native lands in this country who statistically are persistently at the bottom of opportunity, educational opportunity, stood up and said, this is not happening. We're not going to allow this to happen here. When we talk about the condition and state of Black women in this country, we cannot simultaneously say, that these are the same people who don't have access and don't have power, while at the same time saying it was through those expressions of power that our democracy made some of the greatest progress in the past decade. I think we have to be a little bit conscious and a little bit careful about how we think about these expressions and positive expressions of our democracy, where it's actually taking us forward, and that we are in many ways in a fight with folks who really want to see, um, who want to hold a, a status quo that increasingly serves a smaller and smaller set of votes um, that is aligned to to Trellis's point, oftentimes with enormous concentrations of wealth in the hands of a few. And it's those kinds of concentrated wealth and access to concentrated power that deeply under, undermines our democracy. And that is the one thing I will say that is different, that we are seeing such concentrations of wealth. We are seeing the, the asymmetry of the ability for people to express themselves and have economic opportunity is so much greater than it's ever been in our nation's history. And it doesn't look like it's changing without meaningful political and policy interventions. That is absolutely a space where we have to point and pay attention um, because that in and of itself is different. That in and of itself is something that's unique. But I do believe that I think if we look at the opportunities that have presented themselves, who has shown up, how people have shown up, it is indeed the youngest people, the people who have been the most excluded. It is indeed always been those folks who have stood up and held their ground. Um, and I think we have to be a bit, like I said, let's be a little cautious before we're like, oh, can't, yet we're reliant upon this that, and the other. That sort of, again, it's a dichotomy that exists. We understand the reality of it. Um, You know, Trellis and I are really, and I'm speaking for Trellis, but I hope he would agree, that we are really grateful to work with organizations that are doing some of the greatest work in activating and organizing these folks all over the country. And the ability to support that work is actually the most essential and most important thing we can do. So, again, I think I got a little adrift of the question, but um, I hope somewhere in there was actually the answer.
3: I just have to, like, plus one, 100%. We need Freedom School we need more freedom summers we we need a sense that beloved community is actually can be realized here and now and that we can organize organize ourselves in community from a different a different viewpoint a place of love a place of caring about our neighbors so that we don't feel that we are all alone or are isolated from the um, threats and challenges that we people face, to again being able to realize their full human potential, right? And that's for everybody, right? I'm not just interested in it for folks who look like me. Let's let's get that out of the way. The truth is, I'm interested in it for everybody. In this country everybody around the world and that's the difference between um how i'm oriented right and those who think very differently than i do with great resources how they align themselves right and you know when i think of um the leadership of black women and this struggle Right. And you point to Georgia. I think of Alabama. What that means in places where folks' voice haven't been heard, people don't have a sense that when they go to the grocery store, right, that they are fully seen and as a full human being and not a threat, somebody who's going to take something that's not theirs. That illusion doesn't stop people from standing up and being counted. You know, we all recognize the shoulders of the folks that we stand on, right? And it's not just through the civil rights movement. It's not just, right, these struggles for independence and full human liberty are you know, been going on as long as people have been organizing themselves in community, right? And are going on across the globe. And those are the things to me that give me hope. I feel fortunate with Keisha to be able to work with folks who are doing some of the greatest and best organizing of people, reminding them of their full potential, offering them the tools they need so they can exercise their power in the way that is not just short-term, but is transformational and helps the country live in to the promise that the founders offered.
2: if I may add, I think it's sort of crazy, considering he ended on such a perfect note. um one of the things I've been thinking about a lot has been sort of the notion of the federal minimum wage and eggs. Um, I know this sounds bizarre. The federal minimum wage is still seven dollars and twenty five cents. A dozen eggs is now six dollars. It is kind of difficult to look at folks. It is really easy to then take that and work from a scarcity frame. And those who are working from scarcity and divisiveness clearly have a pathway to use the conditions of the most of Americans. The elite are the ones who are having these big conversations and going back and forth and saying the other, but most Americans are really trying to find a way where even if they're not making 725, and let's say they're doubling that, at fifteen dollars an hour, trying to find a way to make rent, feed their families, do what needs to be done, when a dozen eggs costs them a half hour's work, when right. rent is now fully almost fifty percent of almost everybody's income, rent or mortgage, we are not in a place that makes people feel comfortable within our economy, and the and the forces of divisiveness act much much more easily within from a place of fear, from a notion of scarcity right? The ability to act in um, isolation within these bubbles that we talked about before, to leverage the technology to advance mis- and disinformation that reinforces people's fear is the easiest path. Mm. And our ability and the ability that philanthropy affords us to support folks that are actually not taking the easy path, who are saying we actually have a way to be abundant together, that there's actually a way for all of us to survive and thrive if we look and orientate our set orient ourselves to what does it mean to be a worker? What does it mean to be um, working from home? What does it mean to be working in space? What does it mean to be raising children? What does it mean to be doing this work in a collective way that does reference the independence, the the full human dignity that Trellis referred to, that we think about these things and so. I don't want to, Giovanna, like sort of ignore the crucible that we're operating in, the realities of where we are and why some of the points you raised earlier are so salient, why that is the easiest pathway and how people are leveraging that. Um, And that, but, you know, my eternal optimism says the people that I see every day doing the work, not taking the short road, looking looking at how not just, you know, short-term messages get someone to act in a three to four week period, but to actually think about how we're shaping the narrative of who we are. And so I think this is tough, right? I mean, it's, you know, the idea that's like, what, what gives people hope? W- what can we focus on for the future? And I think that because there are no promises and we only have today and what we know and understand, we can build from that. We can look around and see, the opportunities and the optimism of a future we haven't shaped. But that also means we're also not bound by the past, right? What was doesn't determine what will be. And the ability to shape this only comes from the belief that you can. And so there is an actual need, right? For things to be different, you have to be able and willing and have a shape of a possibility that things can be different. That in and of itself is a privilege the ability to see something, see opportunities greater than what's in front of you, particularly for folks living in crisis situations, refugee camps, resting at borders, living, you know, living in living in poverty, all these places that don't give much of a window into the future. Many of the best ideas come from those populations.
3: We just have to get radical about caring about one another. And in getting radical about caring about one another, we have to start by really interrogating what it means to care about ourselves, all of ourselves, not just the parts of ourselves that we want people to like, but the parts of ourselves that it's easy to ignore and pretend don't exist. Because when we do those things to ourselves, we undoubtedly do it to each other, right? And so our ability to be able to look at ourselves and interrogate and care about the places we don't want to be in increases our capacity to be able to offer that same care to one another.
1: I have to say thank you very much to the both of you for all the work that you do. I'm very proud of the both of you and to know you. Thank you for being with us. A lot of learning here today. So thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to the Podcast for Democracy, brought to you by OPEN, the online progressive engagement network. Please subscribe and download this podcast and tell your friends. Also, feel free to rate and review the podcast, available on all podcast platforms. Find out more at the-open.net. That's the-open.net.